What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. Hey everyone, Happy New Year. It's been a wonderful time away for the past two weeks, but I got to tell you, we're really excited about the coming year uh, that I just can't wait to get started. So real quickly, updates. Monday nights, we're back up and going at 6 to 8 p.m. on Monday nights, and so we're going to be starting uh, this Monday, which is tomorrow. And uh, and then also just kind of a heads up for those who might be in the Newberry Park area on Saturday, or I'm sorry, Sunday, January 27th. Uh, we're going to do at 1 p.m. We're going to just go right into our front yard. We're going to go around the neighborhood actually today as well as next week to invite our neighbors to uh, our first annual Longford Avenue rib off competition for the best ribs in town or at least on the street. We basically want to be a neighborhood church for the neighborhood. And it first starts by connecting with our neighbors in a low-key and relational way. So let's get to this week's narrative. In an effort to protect your kids from some of the realities about the world, uh, you might choose to be selective with what it is that you uh, reveal to them about the world around you, even about perhaps a little bit about yourselves. And while we're careful to, uh, with what we have allowed our kids to experience in their formative years, we knew, V and I knew, that we would be far more effective as parents if we helped our kids navigate through some of the nasty things that our world has put in front of them. So we've had countless conversations about how to help our kids to walk through troubling situations, kind of a controlled environment for for struggle and for even making decisions that may not necessarily be the best, Uh, but at the same time helping them walk through solutions that they begin to see the value of why it is we do what we do and the values that we hold. And we're really grateful that they have chosen, for the most part, to trust our counsel more than that of their peers. In many cases, we've seen our own kids develop some false assumptions about us as parents, right? They thought the rules that applied to them might be universal and that they were to go without exception, eventually to realize that the rules were designed to be in place only for a time, a time when they developed, a time when they got older, a time when they matured. In a similar way, we're seeing God open up a much bigger world in front of his followers. To date, they have been but children. Paul even calls them pedagogues or young students. And they have learned the do's and don'ts of the law so rigidly up to this point that they are now reeling from the new discovery that God has bigger plans and has had bigger plans all along. It's going to be a bumpy ride for Peter especially as he has to unlearn some false assumptions that he has about God. So, here in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 23, Peter is given his next set of marching orders as he is confronted with a much bigger idea about God. And that's the big issue for today. Are you a good listener? How well do you listen when God speaks? So I'm going to give you a setting here. Cornelius, who we'll find out who he is in a moment, is in his larger Caesarea home. So here we go uh, with the beginning of our narrative. 
Will that be all, sir? A house servant asks as he hands Cornelius a cup of tea. Your optionist has left for the afternoon. Cornelius spent the better part of a morning with his right-hand man, dealing with the typical peacekeeping affairs attended by a high-ranking military administrator, though today they had dealt with an atypically large amount of personal needs fueled by Caesarea's local citizenry. Lots of needs here, Cornelius muses. Cornelius rises from his seat to disrobe and acknowledge a servant. Yes, thank you. Removing his business attire and placing his vine stick aside, Cornelius makes himself more comfortable in his undergarments. Should we be expecting any more visitors today, the servant asks. You've had your fair share of activity today, sir. The local Jews seem to be visiting here more often than normal. Recognizing where his servant was heading with this, Cornelius shares a quiet laugh. I think our business is done for the day, thank you. That will be all for now. The man nods and excuses himself, leaving Cornelius to the freshly quiet living area. The room around him is well-appointed and comfortable. He looks around to take it in with a moment of gratitude. You never know what might happen next, but I am grateful for your hand of providence, my lord. He speaks aloud. A senior centurion and camp prefect, Cornelius has been appointed an administrative role to keep peace in this part of the world. God, thank you for your generosity. How can, I, how can I not be generous to your people as an expression of my gratitude? Cornelius walks over to a prayer mat resting in the corner. He pulls it out, unfolds it, and lays it out on the floor. Beginning the mincha, the afternoon prayer, Cornelius recites a psalm of praise. Happy are they who dwell in your house. They will always praise you, always. He then moves through a portion of the prophet Malachi, who proclaimed the Lord's coming to be likened to a white-hot fire from the smelter's furnace and a strong lye soap, a refiner's silver and a tough detergent on soiled clothes. The Lord will scrub the Levites and priests clean until they are fit for God, fit to present offerings of righteousness. Only then would they be pleasing to God. As Cornelius continues praying through the mincha, with eyes wide open and his head raised to the heavens, Cornelius gets distracted. A brilliant flash of light moves just outside of his peripheral vision. In a split second, Cornelius assesses that he is not alone in the room and stands to meet his aggressor. His sword and vine stick are on the other side of the room. A formidably large soldier, Cornelius will have to rely upon the limbs God has given him, his fists, elbows, knees, and legs. But nothing is there. He examines every direction within the larger room. Nothing. What did he see? What did he hear? Undeterred, Cornelius walks around the room, seeking any indicator of somebody being present with him. Nothing. He walks over to retrieve his sword and vine stick, all the while wondering if he's going slightly insane. Kneeling to face the larger room with his eyes wide open, Cornelius resumes his prayers. Lord, I don't know what just happened but may you protect me from whatever might be out there. Lord, you know the needs of your people here in Caesarea and throughout Judea and the Galilee. The Roman occupation of this land, while better than they had been before, is still quite oppressive, and I'm stuck in the middle. Lord, help me be fair to these people. They are your people. They serve you, and they are devoted to you in the most courageous of ways. If you love them, then I must help them. Flash! 
A hazy moment of brilliant light falls just out of reach from the corner of his eyes. Cornelius abruptly turns his head in the direction of the movement. Nothing. He evaluates the room again. What is going on? A frazzled Cornelius wonders aloud. He looks forward again. Wait. From the other side of the room, a figure morphs clearly right before his eyes. Instinctively, a battle-proven Cornelius reaches for his sword, but he is unable to budge. Like a nightmare stirring the life, a paralyzed Cornelius watches a brilliantly decorated and formidable figure materialize. He becomes clear, but only for a second. His clothes literally shine as a noonday sun. What drill has prepared this well-decorated military administrator for this? He has strategized, commanded, and even led countless assaults alongside his mighty regiment. Yet here, he ironically sits helpless in the comfort and security of his well-appointed home. Drawing up within inches of his face, the figure becomes vague again. Cornelius attempts to move his muscular arms. Nothing happens. His legs twitch, yet he can do little more than fidget. Paralysis overwhelms, and he is helpless to the whims of the figure in front of him. Oh, Lord, please rescue me from this. I need you. Cornelius, the figure calls out in an understated tone. It doesn't seem emotionally distraught or needing to prove its power. No, a simple direct tone of one who is carrying out orders. For a brief moment, Cornelius appreciates the professionalism of this soldier. He doesn't operate out of his own authority, he thinks. No, he works for someone much greater. What is it, my lord? Cornelius manages to ask out of a reply. The figure backs away a few feet and clearly reveals a magnificent specimen. A man of great size now stands before him. Clearly uniformed and brandishing a shiny sword in a sheath, Cornelius understands this man to be a soldier, like him. But this soldier was unlike any he has ever seen. Your prayers have been answered, says the man. Wait, what? Moving from abject terror, Cornelius now takes on a tone of confusion. I don't understand. Your prayers and charitable acts have risen as a tribute before God. He has noticed you, especially with how you have helped the poor. The man standing before him now smiles. Now, send some men to Joppa and have them return with a man named Simon. He also goes by Peter. He is staying with Simon, who is a tanner that lives near the beach. The soldier vanishes. With full use of his body once again, Cornelius rubs his arms and legs that are tender to the touch. He looks around, and there is no trace of what has just happened. He folds his prayer mat and places it back into the corner. Knowing what he must do, Cornelius walks out of the room and fetches his servant. Moving through the doorway into the next room, Cornelius sees his servant tidying up the room where the business of the day was earlier conducted. Hearing him enter the room, the servant comes to attention and is surprised to, to see a disheveled man leaning against the doorway. Appearing ashen, Cornelius looks like he has just seen a ghost. We need to talk, Alexandros, is all Cornelius can muster. While explaining the details to his chief servant, Cornelius then requests a dispatch of two servants, along with his optionist, his right-hand man, to travel to Joppa to bring back Peter. Sir, shall we use the cursus publicus, our courier?
They can arrange to carry out a summons much faster than sending our own people to make the journey to Joppa. Cornelius ponders this for a moment. No, Alexandros, I don't think this qualifies as an official civic summons. He continues to think. We would fare better to keep this a private matter. Fetching their things, Cornelius's right-hand man and two servants begin their ten-hour hike towards Joppa. By noontime, the cooler marine layer of the Mediterranean has burned away and allows for the warmth of the sun to be felt on the rooftop. A reminder of previous living, the sea offers Peter a place of familiarity and comfort. However, this sea is endless in comparison to the Galilee. Peter allows his thoughts to linger, and with permission, a flurry of distant and recent memories flood into his consciousness. Feeling a bit hungry, Peter carefully steps down the narrow staircase nestled against the outside wall of the home. At the bottom of the stairwell, he leans into the doorway to see what meal preparations are being made. His wife and another dutifully work at preparing a bread and oil and vegetable plate. Not wishing to interrupt their work, Peter quietly hikes back up to the rooftop to continue his noontime prayers. Arriving at the top of the home, Peter whiffs another strong, foul odor coming from Simon's shop only a few feet away. Simon, a tanner by trade, is required to operate his shop a minimum of 75 feet away from any other shop or home in the city. Tanners are necessary evils throughout this part of the world. Leatherworking is needed for sandals, cords, clothing, and everyday items. But the smell, oof, the smell could be so foul that tanners are not only considered to be the lowest of tradesmen, they would often be granted exemption from attending feasts and synagogue and even the temple. The smell could be so bad that a wife could lawfully ask her husband to divorce her should she no longer be able to endure it. I'm glad she decided to stick this one out, Peter laughs to himself, as he ponders how Simon's wife could put up with such a nasty smell as all of her life. Much worse, the stench was permanently present in Simon's skin, his hair, his beard, and even under his fingernails. Peter continues, Maybe she's accustomed to breathing through her mouth. Or maybe the odor has burned her capacity to smell altogether. Boy, that would be a welcome break. Getting back to the rooftop and dropping to his knees, Peter purposefully reflects again. Lord, a lot has happened within these past few years. To think that you would uproot my wife and me from our families in Capernaum, to have an extensive stay in Jerusalem and now here in Joppa. I just didn't see any of this coming. Lord, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for your provision. Thank you for Simon. He's such a good guy. But I am curious to see where all this goes. What are you doing with us? What are you doing with this new body of believers who have scattered like chaff in the wind? What do we do next? The surroundings fall away as Peter moves deeper into his time of prayer. In a trance-like state, Peter looks up to see the sky part as a curtain that reveals a back room floating downward from this other world as a rectangular blanket as if it were being lowered by ropes at its four corners. But there are no ropes. As the blanket continues to lower, Peter cranes his neck upwards to get a better glimpse of what he perceives as living movement on top of the blanket. What is that, he wonders. Finally, as the top of the blanket comes into view, Peter backs up to take in the panoramic scene. Animals? Yes, animals of every sort and size. Countless mammals, 
Reptiles, birds, and insects alike flutter around the blanket, each to its own peculiar rhythm. Peter, a voice clearly identifies him by name. Peter looks around to see nothing. Only the enormous animal-populated blanket can be seen. Peter, the voice calls out again, Get up, kill, and eat them. Lord, you know I can't do that, Peter responds with a confused and conflicted tone. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. You have prohibited such things, Lord. Peter, the voice calls out a second time, you no longer need to see what God has cleansed as unclean or common. Shell-shocked, Peter shakes his head at the thought. His entire life has been dictated by following Jewish teaching and lawful behavior. What is he supposed to do? Completely abandon all that he's been taught? What are the implications of our ministry here in Judea and Galilee, he thinks. As if the voice knows the direction of Peter's thoughts, it interrupts him once again. What God has made clean, you are no longer to view as unholy. Peter protests once again, Lord, I cannot simply undo what we Jews have been taught all these years. Didn't you inspire this? Don't our dietary laws come from your instruction? The voice raises, Peter, what God has cleansed, you may no longer consider as unclean. Before Peter could object again, the blanket instantaneously raised back into the sky. Then the once open sky curtain immediately fell back into place, hiding the heavenly room behind it. Silence ensues, leaving Peter to process what just happened. In the midst of his reflection, a voice from inside his head gets his attention. Peter, get up. There are three men who have just arrived to see you. Go downstairs and don't hesitate to go with them. I have sent them to you. Yelling out from a gate that leads to the inner courtyard, three men try to get the attention of whomever is home. Wow, one of the servants looks at another while waving his hand in front of his nose. You just don't get used to that, do you? The others nod and chide. The guy who gave us directions did just say, follow your nose, didn't he? Opening the gate, Simon's wife lets them in once learning that they're in search of Peter. Surprising them from behind, Peter walks up and asks, I'm the one you're looking for. Why are you here? One of the servants jolt when surprised from behind. The option is also startled, turns to address Peter and explains, Cornelius, he's a centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man with a great reputation among the Jews. He has recently had an encounter with God whereby he was directed by a holy angel to find you and to bring you back with us to meet him in Caesarea. You have a message for him, Peter, and he wants to hear it. In a subtle and brief moment, Peter looks up and says, Okay, God, I guess I asked where things are going, so here we go. He then turns to his guests and invites them to share a meal and to stay until morning. Guys, let's wrap it up. Let's get a little personal here. What have you been taught about the nature of God all these years that doesn't necessarily reflect what the Bible shares? Sometimes tradition just gets things wrong. In fact, tradition can get things wrong all the time. What's worse is how we tend to practice traditions that are not only bogus, but often lead us away from the very heart of God. Yikes, I know, but it's true. Poor theological thinking often results in bad habits and potentially even dangerous decisions. Additionally, sometimes the Bible shares things that we're not too excited about reading. 
stating ideas or concepts that run contrary to what we viscerally believe about God, life, and the world around us. If we truly believe Jesus to be the Word of God, and that the Bible is a reliable source for what we need to know about God, then what happens when our beliefs run contrary to what God has revealed about Himself, about life, or humanity? Maybe another question to ask is this, how moldable are you to the revelation of God? There is no need to be afraid of your Bible. God desires to be understood because His ways are best. All I'm saying is that tradition often gets in the way. Are you a good listener? How well do you listen when God speaks? Moreover, how flexible are you when God wants you to go down an unknown or or uncomfortable road? Some things to think about. Anyways, we're going to kind of hash this out and flesh this out when we meet together on Monday night. Not this Monday. Well, we're meeting this Monday, but we're going to be meeting on last time's notes. So we're going to be talking about these notes next Monday. Anyways, that's it for now, guys. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you soon.